If you want to work smarter, you need a system with smart built in. Workday has AI embedded into the core of the system to seamlessly support your workflow and deliver unprecedented adaptability. Workday, the finance and HR system for a changing world. I've come to see a stalled property development. There's a lot of unfinished buildings that look like they're in disrepair. Last week, our China business and finance editor, Don Wineland, set on a tour of some of the country's cities, including Xi'an in the northwest. So there's a lot of windows that don't have any glass in them, some scaffolding around some of the buildings. Some of them look like they're almost complete, and then others have no finished facade or anything like that. I can hear some drills coming from, from inside the developments. I don't know what that means exactly. But according to Chinese media, this area has been deserted for a couple months. As in many cities around China, housing here had been in very high demand. Many people put down nearly 100% deposits on flats before they'd even been built, or in this case, half built. Lots of the residents who bought these homes have actually moved into them before they've been completed. I can only imagine that living in one of these places right now in this type of weather, which is on a daily average about 37, 38, sometimes over 40 degrees, it must not be very pleasant to, to live in one of these places that aren't finished. And it's unclear when, if ever, this project will be finished. And this isn't just a problem in Xi'an. There are lots of these developments around China. At many of them, the residents have not moved in, but they've stopped paying their mortgages. And that's causing a big problem. A big problem for the developers, the people looking for housing, and for the world's second largest economy. You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy, and the world of business. I'm Mike Bird. I'm Samaya Keynes. I'm Alice Fulwood. And in today's show, why problems in the property sector are symptomatic of wider challenges confronting China's economy. First, we'll find out how real estate became such a popular investment. You know, it's only been kind of 25, 30 years that the Chinese real estate market uh, has been in existence. Then... We'll look at why efforts to raise the alarm initially fell on deaf ears. I was sued by the Hong Kong Securities and Future Commission for fabricating the story. We went to court, I lost, went to the Court of Appeals, and I lost again. And we'll ask what happens if Chinese residents lose their appetite for property. What's happened is that faith in the pre-sale model is now in jeopardy. And what that could mean for Xi Jinping's future. Hello, Alice and Samaya. Hey, Mike. Have you uh, recovered from your jet lag? Yeah, I helpfully uh, connived to make sure the majority of this week's episode was in my time zone. So I, I can't really complain this time. And I know that you've been eager to do this episode for a while, um, and it seems very well-timed. There's a bunch of not very good news coming out of China. The central bank just cut interest rates on Monday, August 15th. And I am very excited for this episode just to hear exactly how worried we should be. And I've been just as eager for us to do this episode so I can hear from you what is behind these mortgage boycotts we've been seeing in China. 
Yeah, it's really fascinating. What we've been seeing is this wave of people refusing to pay the mortgages they owe for houses they've bought, which haven't been completed by the developers building them. In some cases, construction has barely started on these units. If you've been listening to our daily sister podcast, The Intelligence, you might have heard Don a few weeks ago talking about these protests, which started in Jiangxi in eastern China and have since spread. We're going to go into this in way more depth in a bit, but essentially due to a combination of the COVID lockdowns, China's sluggish growth, and the awful financial condition of some of the companies that are meant to be building these properties, many of the developments have just completely stalled. And this has left a lot of people in China paying hefty mortgages for properties that they worry may never get built at all. And that's the interesting part, since Chinese protests are just so very rare. Exactly. And seeing those kinds of protests in China was probably when a lot of listeners, myself included, you know, got interested in all the things that were going wrong in China's property sector. Yeah, absolutely. But the issues in the sector go back a lot further than just this spring. To get us all up to speed, I rang up Victor Xi. He's an associate professor at the School of Global Policy and Strategy at UC San Diego, and he's an expert in all things China finance, politics, and property related. Victor, hello. Thank you. Great to be here. So let's take it back to the beginning of this particular story. It's not all that long ago that private property ownership wasn't even legal in China. What are the sort of origins of the change that made this such a big sector? Yeah, so as you implied, China had very little private housing. Even as late as the early 1990s, there was a very significant reform in the middle of 1990s carried out by then-premier Zhu Rongji, which encouraged people who worked for the government or state-owned enterprises, which composed the vast majority of urban residents at that time, to buy their private housing instead of living in housing provided by their work units. And that really set off this extraordinary run in the real estate market in China starting from the 1990s. But if you think about it, that's fairly recent. You know, it's only been kind of 25, 30 years Mm -hmm. that the Chinese real estate market has been in existence. And so if you look at the sort of absolute levels of property ownership is is very high for one, but the investment levels are amazing. Last year, you had a little more than 11 trillion yuan invested in real estate that year. That's about 1.7 trillion US dollars. And you're talking about about 10% of Chinese GDP. Whereas if you look at the US, where obviously there was a there was a pretty crazy market in real estate in the US last year, had about 1.1 trillion in private residential investment. And that's more like 4% of US GDP, as I say, in a, a pretty hot year. So what is it that makes real estate particularly popular to Chinese households to buy? Why is it the preferred asset? Uh, so initially... It was because the the quality of housing in China, especially in urban spaces, was just so poor. And so there was just really huge inherent demand of urban residents to get better quality housing. Over time, however, as <clears throat> the ratio of urban residents with their own properties, you know, grew past 80, 90 percent, which has been the case, you know, already for the past 10 years or so. Basically, housing was seen as a main avenue for investment, given that people in China cannot take large sums of money out of the country to invest in other countries, like buying Google stocks overseas. That is not allowed in China. And also, 
that the domestic stock market is very volatile, people in China continue to see real estate as a really good target of investment because, of course, real estate prices has up to very recently been growing almost uninterruptedly for the past three decades. Yeah, and the thing is, when I speak to people in the mainland, there's a very strong conception that house prices have been on this amazing run, but also a sort of conception to some extent that people believe the prices can't really go down or go down all that much. And I want to ask you a little bit about if Chinese households buying a lot of property is the sort of pull factor here. There's a push factor as well, right, in that the the local governments have these sort of special interesting incentives to sell a lot of land. Oh, yeah. So basically, you know, when we think about local governments and cities in China, we think of places like Shanghai and Hangzhou and, and Shenzhen, where there's incredible, you know, technology industries, where a lot of jobs are being created. But, but that actually, those cities are the exceptions and not the rule. The rule in China are, you know, small to medium cities. There are hundreds of them. There aren't a lot of high-tech industries in those cities, and oftentimes there are dying kind of old in, you know, industries like steelmaking and coal and so on and so forth. And those cities really don't have a lot of growth engine except for real estate investment and other infrastructure construction. And so for, for local governments in these hundreds of cities that are not especially dynamic, developing real estate, approving new land for real estate developers to, to develop has been a main source of growth for those cities. And the actual sort of sales of housing, they've become not just, obviously, the, the way the entire market turns over, but they've become this crucial source of funding for the years ahead for the developers. That's right. Yes. So the way that Chinese property development works is that it's highly leveraged, at least for most companies. But traditionally, property developers would basically borrow on both ends. <laughs> they would borrow from banks because they're you know, trying to acquire land, they're trying to build housing, but they also borrow from buyers through this practice of pre-sale. Uh, so basically buyers would be shown a nice picture of you know, what their future housing would look like and say, that, okay, well, you have to pay upfront today and three years from now, or sometimes even four or five years from now, you're going to get this you know, nice, pretty apartment. Uh, but in essence, that's a loan from the buyers to the developers. And so what property developers do is to use the proceeds from the pre-sales, not necessarily to finish building what they promised the buyers, but also to roll this money into a new project and buy land for the next project. But once people lose the appetite for pre-sales, it's kind of like musical chair and, and the music is sort of fading away. So this is not a good situation for the property market in China. Yeah, I guess this does have some sort of Ponzi-like features in the sense that somebody buying a, an unbuilt property in, in China is presumably thinking that the money they're paying is going towards the development of that rather than, as you say, either to the purchase of additional land or even to the, the development of properties that were you know, promised years earlier in some cases. So let's talk a little bit about what's changed more recently. In 2020, you had this three red lines policy brought in to try and control the, the real estate developers to sort of bring them back down to earth. What was the sort of thinking behind that and what did that entail? 
Yeah, so periodically, technocrats in the state council will look at the numbers and look at the extent of leveraging of different sectors of the economy. And of course, real estate has been kind of a, a pretty highly levered sector. But I think they basically looked at this and someone probably submitted the report. And so the state council had the mandate to roll out a set of very, I think, pretty draconian regulations to limit the debt asset ratio and the cash short-term debt ratios of real estate developers. So that, especially I think on the cash side, this is very important. When developers get cash from the the buyers, especially those who are buying in advance of delivery of, of the housing, the new regulations essentially require them to hold hold on to the cash that is in proportion to the short-term debt that they have. And, and this really limit their ability to roll the money to the next project. Um, the one advantage of rolling your money always to the next project is that once you can use the pre-sale revenue to buy land for the next project, you can then go to the bank and say, aha, I got the cash and I got a new piece of land. This new piece of land is worth you know, X amount of money. Give me a loan on the basis of this new piece of land. And oftentimes this is how developers are able to raise money from the banks. But if they are not able to roll the money to a new project, they can't borrow even more money from the banks. And so, in fact, for a lot of developers, they they don't have enough money to finish building a lot of their existing projects because they have been counting on new bank loans for them to do so. And so the delivery of apartments began to slow down. And the buyers who had put up money years in advance in expectation of an apartment being delivered to them in 2020, 2021, and now 2022, are not getting them. And many of them are quite fed up with that. Yeah, I, I remember when the the sort of three red lines policy came out, and it felt like you were finally getting this moment of having had years of hearing President Xi saying, houses are for living in, not for speculation, which is this sort of line that was very popular. You actually saw the policy come out. And, and as you suggest, the rubber has sort of hit the road. Uh, Victor, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you. It was great to be here. So as Victor just mentioned, the real challenges in the sector didn't start this year or even last year. And in fact, a name that you're probably familiar with if you've been following this story uh, for a long time is Evergrande. Yes, Evergrande was China's second largest property developer. And as of late 2021, it was the world's most indebted property developer to the tune of $300 billion. And its business model was precarious for years, far before China implemented those three red lines. It was something that might have been acknowledged internally within China, but tackling it head on was too much of a threat to the heavily leveraged property sector. But one person who did try ringing the alarm was Andrew Left. He's the founder of Citron Research. It's a research and commentary firm focusing on individual companies. And in 2012, he wrote a report on the financial health of Evergrande that made a lot of news at the time. Andrew, thank you very much for joining us. Nice to be here. So to start with, Andrew, 2012 was quite a long time ago. For those who are listening but hadn't read the original report, what did you say about Evergrande at the time? I said Evergrande was a house of cards. It was pretty much insolvent at the time, relying completely on debt. It had financials that were inflated to show higher assets than they actually had. Uh, They were deceiving their customers as for the completion ratio of projects and so on and so forth. 
And so in the intervening years between then and now, Evergrande only got bigger. In fact, as a bit of an understatement, in the year you wrote your report, Evergrande reported about 10 billion US dollars in, in housing sales in China, a figure that rose to about $75 billion in 2020. But what happened to you after you wrote your report? <laughs> I was sued by the Hong Kong Securities and Future Commission for fabricating the story. We went to court. I lost, went to the Court of Appeals, and I lost again. I spent probably six or seven years in court, millions of dollars to defend the integrity of the report. Subsequently, I think it might have been within two months after the final ruling from the Supreme Court that they would not hear the case that Evergrande started to unravel and everything just turned out to be true. I mean, what do you make of the sort of long delay between your report, which I think identified a lot of the things that were, were wrong with the company, and the company's subsequent collapse. It was pretty obvious. I mean, if you looked at it back then, it was obvious. The only thing that wasn't obvious is how long the government would let it go on for. So, you know, it was around two years ago when it all came to a halt. Is the government pulled back the leverage that was being afforded to the developers. And Evergrande was obviously the largest. And they were spreading themselves very thin. They were making the largest football stadium in the world, they were saying they were going to develop an electric car company. They were the one that had to get reined in. So as soon as you tuck back their leverage, and most importantly, the amount of unfinished projects they had, and what you're seeing now, the tail of it with the mortgage strike in China, that's really scary. It's amazing that the government didn't look at the long tail effect of what could happen, that people will not pay these bills, people will be unhappy. And the ultimate thing that China always wants to avoid is civil unrest, obviously. So what is your view on what's been happening in the Chinese property market recently? Do you think this is the sort of accumulation of things that you identified in 2012 or that there are other factors uh, sort of happening? I mean, I'll be honest. I would love to pat myself on the back and say I saw the whole thing coming as it was, but I didn't. I looked at it as Evergrande specific. I wasn't looking at the whole system. What looks now, it's there's a whole chain that comes from this, which I wasn't thinking about. Now the suppliers to the construction firms don't want to pay their bills, and they don't want to supply them. The landscapers, the plumbers, it's a whole supply chain that goes into construction can just fall apart, along with the smaller regional banks in China who are not as well capitalized as the larger ones to take the hits. I do believe that China has enough levers to pull to make this, it will not bring down the country's financial system. You know, that's not happening in China. But will it pull them back five, 10 years, you know, maybe longer? Yeah, of course, that's what it looks like it's happening. And most importantly, it makes you question the judgment of the government in China that allowed this to happen. So the funny thing is, even when you talk to people in the government, in the central government or close to the central government, they've known about these problems for years. Mm -hmm. It's just a question of, you know, are you going to be the one that, that pulls the brake, knowing that everything comes straight off the tracks afterwards? And, you know, it's funny because if you look at the housing crisis in the U.S. as built on the mortgage-backed securities, it was more of a financial instruments that ruined it. But when you start building vertical as what you know you, you do in China, and you build these communities. These are not single-family homes. And, and, and to chew through them, it could be a generational problem. Okay, so standing here in August 2022, 10 years later, how do you feel about your decisions on Evergrande? Do you feel vindicated? Do you feel like you've learned any particular lessons? 
Not as an investor. You learn more of a lesson as a human, the, the crazy irony of life that we live in, right? So you would spend seven years fighting something and saying you're right and pounding a table, spending a lot of time, money, and effort, and then only to be somewhat vindicated when nothing can be done anymore. So I don't take relish in other people's misery. I don't take pride in the fact that it happened. I knew it was going to happen. Many investors knew it was going to happen. Now that it's over, would I like my money back on legal fees and my fines? Of course. You know, would I like my time back? Of course. But that that's not happening. So in the meantime, you know, we do a podcast like this and hopefully someone will memorialize because I see there are comments right now in the media, people saying, oh, no one could have seen this coming. Anyone could have seen this coming. The problem is you were not allowed to criticize when you saw it coming because what I didn't realize back then is the importance of Evergrande to the government. And the last thing they needed was a short seller from the United States putting out commentary questioning the system. Andrew Left, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Now, after the break, we're going to hear from Don again and our China economics editor, Simon Cox, to find out what should be done about this mess and what it could mean for Xi Jinping's future. But before then... It is our favourite time of the show. Where we ask you to take out a subscription to The Economist. In this week's issue, I'm writing about the differences between the two candidates scrapping to be Britain's next prime minister. There is also a long briefing looking at the state of the Republican Party, which is something that will be covered in this week's episode of our show about American politics, Checks and Balance. Listeners can get a great introductory offer at economist.com slash podcast offer. And if you're already a subscriber, thank you. You should check out our rapidly growing number of subscriber-only newsletters, like Money Talks or The Bottom Line. They're available at economist.com slash newsletters. Both of those links are in the notes for this episode. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm on a high-speed rail right now, and I've just left the station of Luoyang, which is in Henan province. The train right now is passing through a district of Luoyang called Yibin. That's Don again, who continued his tour of Chinese cities after he stopped in Xi'an. Yibin's claim to fame is that it is a huge district that is completely filled with unfinished houses, unfinished apartments. So as we're cruising through right now, I mean, it's just row after row for as far as I can see of buildings that just don't look complete. There's cranes sitting around some of the buildings, but it just doesn't look like anyone actually lives in the in the area. He eventually hopped off the train to make time to speak with us for this episode. Don, hello. Where are you now? Hi, um, I'm in Beijing right now. 
Where did you end up going on your tour? And were you a little bit surprised by what you saw? That sounded pretty grim. Yeah, so the tour took me through Changsha and Xi'an. So these are two very large cities in the interior of China. I also passed through Hunan province on the train. I wasn't terribly surprised to see uh, this type of thing playing out. Um, I traveled pretty extensively in Hunan in 2019. And, you know, the, the stretch of, of land between the city of, of Luoyang and the city of Zhengzhou, you know, this, is all, this has been a showcase of stalled developments for several years. Things haven't improved since 2019, so it's, it's no surprise to see that uh, these projects are still stalled or, or just simply falling apart. I guess that gives us an indication of how long this has been going on for, that you managed to, you know, leave the mainland, work in Hong Kong for a bit, go back, and you're seeing pretty much the same stuff on your return. Um, I wanted to get your thoughts on what this sort of means for the Chinese economy. And to do that, I wanted to bring in another person who's been reporting on this for us, Simon Cox, our China economics editor. Simon, hello, where are you at the moment? Hi, I'm still in Hong Kong. I'm, I'm going nowhere. <laughs> Okay. Okay. So before you joined, we heard from Victor Xi, who outlined the political shifts that led to property becoming such a huge asset class in China. We also heard from Andrew Left, who was warning as far back as 2012 that something seemed fishy, especially with Evergrande at the very least. Um, but let's talk about today, this moment. Um, what's the latest news? Well, we saw on Monday, uh, the report of another big drop in property sales. Uh, they've fallen by about 29% in the 12 months to July. And in response to that news, uh, the central bank cut uh, interest rates by 0.1 percentage points, uh, even though there had been some signalling from the authorities that uh, monetary policy had done pretty much all it could do. Um, what we've seen um, more broadly is uh, the faltering of this high turnover, high leverage property model that I know you've discussed already and of course, the other big development, Mike, is this uh, wave of mortgage strikes or mortgage boycotts, um, according to a crowdsource document uh, that is circulating online. Uh, this mortgage strike has spread to, to almost 100 cities, over 300 projects, some of them with delightful names. I think there's a, a space station city, there's a dragon city, of course, Peacock City, and a phoenix city. I was a little disappointed to discover that this is the Chinese phoenix, which, unlike the Greek one, does not rise from the ashes. Uh, I hope that's not a, a grim sign for the future. Right. So let's take the sort of options for the Chinese economy or the scenarios for the Chinese economy in turn. And if we start with the sort of the, the best way of looking at the, the rosiest view, Andrew Left sort of hinted at it when I spoke with him. He thought that the Chinese government had enough levers that it would eventually be able to sort of backstop the the, uh, the decline in sentiment and the fall in activity. What, what do you make of that? So I think the first wave of reporting on the mortgage boycotts was a little bit alarmist because it suggested that this property slowdown would start to upend the banking sector, that it would bring uh, the distress to the heart of China's financial system, the banks. I, I think that's somewhat overstated. And of course, you know, there are good reasons not to join a boy mortgage boycott um, unless the government tweaks the rules, um, you will damage your, your credit score. Uh, apart from a few experiments in Shenzhen, it's very hard to declare personal bankruptcy in China. So you can't just sort of walk away from that mortgage debt. It will follow you around forever. And in some ways, uh, as the mortgage boycott gains steam, there's less reason to join it because uh, you can free ride on the protests of others. So in some ways, there's a sort of self-limiting uh, factor here. 
unlike a bank run, where in a bank run you have to be first in, in the line, otherwise there's nothing left for you to grab. So I think the mortgage boycotts are more uh, symbolic. They, they show the amount of uh, despair amongst people who've been waiting a very long time uh, for their properties. And what's happened is that faith in the pre-sale model is now in jeopardy. So the basic assumption that if you handed over large amounts of money for a flat that hadn't been built yet, it would eventually be delivered. That faith is being tested, and that creates the danger of a, a vicious cycle. Yeah, one thing that I would say is that, of course, the Chinese government has you know the firepower to backstop this problem, um, and it's already creating these funds to come in and you know inject liquidity into some of these developments that no longer have enough money to to continue building. The one thing that worries me is implementation by central and local governments. So recently there was another problem in Hunan. Hunan province right now is having lots of problems. It's not only is it the epicenter for this property crisis, it recently was also a place where we saw a lot of protests over a, a small banking crisis. And I raised the banking crisis just to look at how local governments and central governments implement some of these problems when they run into them. So the, this banking crisis where people were no longer able to withdraw money from their accounts, it took weeks and weeks, it, it really it was months before there was any kind of local action to, to stop this problem from spiraling. And, um, you know, it, it, it gained international attention by the time the local government started saying that they would begin paying back depositors. So, yes, I think it's possible that the central government can solve this problem on paper, but when it comes to actually implementing these things in a timely manner, they don't always do it correctly and they don't do it when it needs to be done. Okay, so given all of that and given everything that Andrew and Victor had to say about the prospects of the government stepping in, what do you think will be done here? And to add to that, what do you think should be done here? So there's a, a sort of short-term and long-term answer to that. Uh, in the short term, I think you know, the government should make sure that the pre-sold flats do get built. And back when uh, Evergrande defaulted uh, last autumn, you know, everyone confidently said that you know, China would let the foreign bondholders and maybe even some of the domestic bondholders get wiped out, but it would ensure that flats get delivered. And I think what's surprising is, as Don said, how long it's taking them uh, to deliver on that uh, assumption. Uh, and the dynamics between the central government and local governments uh, that are delaying that whole process. So I think it looks like the central government will have to step in. And then the longer term is how does China's economy cope with a real estate sector that's going to have to be smaller from, from now on, that's not going to be a big engine for growth, that will indeed most likely be a, a drag on growth. And how does China's economy cope with that without large amounts of unemployment? And, and there, what, what should happen is that other parts of the economy grow uh, to take advantage of the resources that are no longer tied up uh, in property. Now, it's easier to do that if confidence across the board is strong and that there are other sectors that are booming. Uh, unfortunately, that's not the case right now in China. Uh, the whole economy uh, is depressed partly by these COVID strictures. So it's a really bad time to try and shift your growth model from property. Yeah, I would add on the longer term, one thing that local governments need to do is they need to, to stop relying so heavily on the sales of land to property developers. So one reason why we're in this situation right now is because local governments have really always promoted the local 
property development markets because that's how they make money. So they need to get away from that. And as Simon hinted, uh, you know, they don't really have the people to continue buying all of these houses over the the longer term. So how you get away from that? Yeah, you you develop new industries that help local economies thrive. I guess that's easier said than done. And just to add to that, Mike, um, you know, as Don knows, there's been lots of talk about introducing a property tax where you would collect revenues on the existing stock of housing rather than continuously trying to uh, obtain revenues from the sale of new undeveloped land. Uh, and that property tax would make a lot of sense. But again, it's something you probably want to introduce during a boom time rather than a bust time. Politically, we're, we're just ahead of the, the CCP meeting. Uh, Xi Jinping likely to be given a third term, essentially uh, what people often refer to as rule for life. Um, what does the sort of housing situation mean politically for the Chinese government? I think the the property crisis is one big thing in a list of problems um, in the run-up to this party congress um, that you mentioned. Uh, one, one thing that, that I would add, though, is that you know the, the Communist Party is very, very good at dealing with these types of problems. If we go back 10 years and think about the last transition of power when um, Xi Jinping actually you know, became president and head of the Communist Party. That was a very turbulent year. There were all sorts of uh, political crises. So, I mean, I, I don't really see any threat to this party congress going down as planned. But yeah, certainly they're facing lots of problems in the run-up to it. Yeah, one of the interesting questions uh, for the party congress is who seems to be lined up to take charge of the economy and you know, it's a very poison chalice right now managing the economy. And it's interesting that you know, Li Keqiang, the, the current premier, um, who's had a, a smaller role um, than, than premiers past, he started out as a hawk. So when he first came in, everyone was talking about economics, and one of the chief planks of economics was supposedly no big stimulus. But right now, uh, most of the reporting suggests that Li Keqiang is more worried about growth and probably would relax COVID restrictions uh, more quickly uh, than uh, Xi Jinping. Insofar as we can tell, you know, any policy differences between the two, the speculation is certainly in that direction. So um, it'd be interesting if uh, that small uh, difference between the t- top leaders manifests itself in the choices for the economic portfolio and, and the premiership. That's really interesting. So some political things to uh, look out for there as well. Uh, Simon and Don, thank you both very much for joining us. Thank you, Mike. Thanks. So, Alice, did that answer all of your questions about what's going on with Chinese property? Yeah, I mean, there certainly is so much uh, in that episode that was really fascinating. You know, in particular, I enjoyed Andrew Left. I think of him as the guy who was, like, taken down by the meme stock crusaders in the US. But but long before that, he was... uh, he was being taken down by the Chinese government. In terms of the dynamics of what's going on in Chinese property sector, I mean, you could look back at property crises in the US, either in 2008 or the savings and loan crisis in the 1980s. And the two things that really seemed to make them spiral out of control were, as you touched on through the episode, massive oversupply or overdevelopment of property and things knocking through to the banking system. And I found it really interesting that, you know, despite all of the attention and chaos that seems to have ensued in China's system, that actually people aren't universally worried about either of those dynamics yet. And so while it is a really huge story, I do see how it could remain relatively contained. 
Yeah, I think in China, just because everything's so big, you can just get very, very big numbers, but you sort of always have to remember the denominator. <laughs> I think one dynamic I found really interesting was this tension or this line between what's a bubble and what's not a bubble, right? So as Simon said, people want these houses, and now it looks like there's some hesitation, maybe demand is cooling for these houses, and it's not actually 100% clear in all cases whether that's because there are just too many houses, or actually it's because people no longer trust that the house will actually be built. And so when you have that lack of trust, there are potentially positive spillovers from some, some kind of government intervention that can restore trust and get the market moving again. But also given that the fundamentals of this market are just so weird and things you know, seem to be going out of whack so much, it also seems quite risky to say, oh, this is just a temporary liquidity issue, um, that there isn't a sort of underlying problem here. Yeah, I'm left wondering the question that I always come back to whenever this stuff is discussed, which is really what happens if, as pretty much everyone we spoke to suggests, the Chinese banking system really is relatively stable and the government is able to put out any sort of fires that, that jump up. And it makes me think about the sort of waste that's gone into this market, the tens of millions of empty properties bought for entirely speculative reasons, um, often in places that you know aren't particularly productive areas of China. And where that leaves me is very worried about Chinese productivity in the longer term, in the years to come, because all of these resources have been plowed into this system and, and they're going to keep being plowed into it to build up what's already been promised. And so a lot of it is just hideously inefficient. And, and the Chinese government has already sort of managed to derail the train to halt the excesses of the property developers. But they've not managed to reform local government finance. So the local governments still rely on those land sales. And they've not given Chinese households anything really to invest in other than property. And so there's been this huge, serious shock to the system, deliberately engineered to a large degree, but nothing has been put in its place uh, to replace it. Ah, uh, this is the doom and gloom I was expecting uh, with this episode. Thank you very much. Um, should we turn to our stats of the week? Absolutely. I will go first. And this week I've stuck to the property theme, but uh, on the other side of the world, my stat is more than $10,000 per square foot, which is the price per square foot that a tiny cottage uh, on Nantucket will set you back in particular, on the Old North Wharf, which is the port on Nantucket near the Whaling Museum, where people used to go whaling, uh, where billionaires like to park their boats. They're paying more than $10,000 a square foot to do so. So if you're bored of investing in Chengdu, you can always dip into Nantucket. Okay, so my stat of the week is that uh, Europe's benchmark power price, uh, which is German year-ahead electricity costs, have now reached above 500 euros per megawatt hour for the first time ever. Um, that's up 500% this year. Uh, if you'd have been paying last August, you'd have been paying considerably under 100 euros. Uh, yeah, another, another very cheery one uh, to go with there. Yeah, I know I'm stocking up on my thermal underwear. Um, okay, my turn. My stat is 16 minutes, which is how much, on average, women work more than men each day. And that's in the UK. If you look at unpaid work, then women do one hour 50 minutes more unpaid work per day than men. I think I think we all work a similar amount of time on, on Money Talks. Um, and, and with our statistics, our thanks go this week to Victor Shee and Andrew Leff. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. 
Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And you can always write to us and send statistics specifically just to me at podcasts at economist.com. Today's show was produced by Alan Habachek. Our editor was Kim Gittleson. Our sound engineer is Saul Rivers. I'm Samaya Keynes. I'm Alice Forward. I'm Mike Bird. And this is The Economist. Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough, Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.